Hello and welcome to Tokyo Inklings. My name is CY, and you can find me on my website at tokyostationpens.com, on Instagram at tokyostationpens, and on Twitter at tokyostationmnh. And my name is Jacob, and I'm a Fudo fan on Instagram and on Twitter, and have a blog at fudofan.com. Hi guys, this is Elisa. I'm Inky Rocks on YouTube, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and TikTok. And this is episode 62. We also have a website um, at tokyoinklings.com. You can find us on Instagram also at tokyoinklings. That's where we upload a preview or kind of like a teaser for our show every two weeks. And uh, that's where you can interact with us. Um, give a comment, uh, give a comment on the picture or on directly onto the show notes. Today we've got um, we've got an exciting episode, I think. Uh, first of all, um, congrats to you two. You put out a, a really great resource, I think, for um, the overseas buyer. And we're going to talk more in depth about that. Um, before we get into that, there was a the Ink 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 event, which I believe you both attended. I did not go. So I'm wondering, how was that? Alessa, do you want to start? <laughs> sure. It, it was it was super fun. Um, it, but it was very, for people to understand, Ink, Ink, Ink is very different than a, a normal pen um, ink show that we have here. A normal ink show, you run around, it's very crowded, and people just go to different booths and uh, like look at the ink, decide if they want to get it and get it. And lots of times there's like washi tape and all kinds of other stationary things. But this one is like the ink sommelier or something. They just have all this ink out there and they give you a dip pen because they mm -hmm. want a fresh pen. And then you use it and they kind of clean up after you. And, and people come there um, to not just buy inks, but just to test a lot of different inks. And exactly. So many people bring, bring their own ink books and stuff like that. So it's a totally different it's still an ink show. They're trying to sell ink, but it's a totally different approach to it. Yeah, that, that was exactly my experience as well. So I went there, I think, like Sunday morning. So I had the first slot on Sunday. It wasn't too crowded at first, but then after 10 minutes, uh, it was pretty difficult to move. And the, re the reason for that is, that first of all, the whole event space at Hall is sort of very narrow, right? And then you have like two, three, four glass tables and full of inks and then people standing next to the table. So you don't have much room to, to move. And then, as you said, Alessa, people aren't really there, at least as far as I could tell, aren't really there to buy. They're there to swatch and to test things. So they just stand there, like they, they go to the first ink and then they carefully swatch and test each and every one and carefully move from one ink bottle to another, taking the, their time, right? So if you are in a hurry and you want to go get all the exclusives, you're going to bump into a lot of people. That was that was my my experience. And, and that also means that unlike this Inkunuma show that we talked about before, people who weren't really... As far as I can tell, they weren't really rushing to get the event exclusives, right? Because there were a few either like pre pre releases at the event or like event exclusives from like from Tag, from Itoya, from Kawasaki and a few, Sailor and a few others. But people, as far as I could tell, they weren't rushing to get those inks. They were more keen on just carefully, uh, slowly testing each and every ink in order. For a retailer like Itoya, what do you think the draw of hosting an event like this was? And do you think that was the intention of, of the of the hosts, or do you think that's just how it ended up to be? I don't think they make too much money from the entrance fee because even though you are paying, I think one thousand yen, for those one thousand yen, you get a custom Itoya branded uh, Pilot Iro Utsushi dip pen. And on top of that, you get a custom-made ink testing notebook made by Kobeha of Grafilo fame. So even if you didn't, wouldn't get anything else, just 
getting that dip pen and that ink testing notebook for a thousand yen is a pretty good deal, I think. But then on top of that, you get, of course, the event tickets. I can't imagine them making too much money on the entrance fees. And I'm sure there's, lo- I'm sure they're, they're wasting a lot of ink and it's going to be a lot of bottles that I have to throw away. Um, so they would only make money if people buying. So I'm not sure how profitable this is in the end. I- I'm curious about that. Well, we obviously weren't in line paying for ink like the rest of us. I think they, I think they did make money. I think you know they, they do sell a lot of mm. ink, but probably, um, you know, they have to put a lot more effort into it, being that they have to set this whole thing up and have mm. people run it. But um, and also many of the inks there were not like twenty dollar bottles of tone, tone on limbs mm. inks. They were like $50 bottles of ink mm. and uh, super special editions. Like she said, one of the ones that really surprised me was um, Aurora inks were relatively popular. And I think it's just seen as an overseas ink and kind of exotic. And those were swatched a lot too. And those tend to be a little, little bit heftier in price than, say, a Tone on Limbs bottle. But yeah, they, they did definitely didn't make money on the entrance fee. And I'm wondering if it's just part of their... We're Atoya, and we we are like the leaders of stationary kind of thing, like a, a flex of some sort. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, you you're right that just like before, I think we talked about that like two or three episodes ago. That unlike the Inkunuma show, which is mostly focused on this, you know, regional links. Itoya's show has a lot of these international inks, right, right, uh, including some. Standard editions like the the Altramentis and Robert Oster and uh, whatever, right? But people seem equally keen on swatching and testing those, which I thought was yeah. very interesting. Absolutely, yeah. And I think they might actually just keep the bottles from last year because quite a few bottles, I'd say probably about twenty percent of the bottles, were you could swatch the ink, but they didn't have anything to sell you. Mm. It was just you could swatch that ink. So I'm wondering if they just kind of gathered up and cap it, since they are pretty good about. You know, making it, making sure everybody keeps the ink clean, and they give you a brand new pen, so you're not introducing mm. any outside, you know, problems. So I, I think they were just kind of it's like you can go there and and swatch a bunch of inks, some of which they don't even have for sale. Mm. Yeah, that, that's probably true. That's probably true. There were a few things I found interesting. One was that so there's this store Kawasaki Bungo Ten that we have talked about a few times. I believe they always do very quirky, interesting pens and inks. <laughs> they sold. They had some either like event exclusives or something they sold at the first time at this event. Some inks that were very clearly made by platinum, like in the sense that they were they used platinum's ink bottles. This like uh, the same bottles as platinum's uh, bo- uh, mixable inks and uh, Rom- rhombus rhombus shape. Rhombus that, up, yeah. that's what i was looking for i couldn't yeah. find it yeah, yeah rhombus. <laughs> <laughs> and and they even had some uh, iron gold ones and we know that platinum selling two kinds of mixable inks just the regular dye based mixable inks and they also have iron gold mixable inks so I'm not sure if this was the Kawasaki guy mixing his own platinum inks and just selling those, or if this was platinum's first foray into like store, store exclusive inks. Yeah, they do have like that Ink Baron guy, right? That they kind of bring in sometimes. Mm. And I, I w- it didn't specifically say it on the boxes, but typically a lot of their their special inks with all the different little I call it Easter grass, you know, little grassy things that they put inside their their boxes mm. to make it look like it's an Easter egg in there or whatever. And um, typically those, the ink baron, I think, makes them. So, yeah, you're, you're right. I, I'm not sure if it was a standard, like, platinum-made ink or he actually had something to do with it. Mm. And then Sailor had two event-exclusive inks, but they, I'm not sure if you bought them. I thought that they looked a bit too boring it was like kononuma and anonuma or something like yeah, that yeah it was just the wordplay i bought one just because it just cracked me up the konouma mm. um anuma so yeah but they were in the typical sailor square bottle and it was kind of not as interesting as the other options mm. yeah so i think overall it was a well-run event and again i think it was a good value and people seemed to have a lot of fun and i remember 
Alessa watching your video, there was some some people there had some ver brought their own ink testing notebooks. There was one that was particularly interesting with these three stripes of paper from di different paper types, right? Right, right. What was it? It was like Grafilo. What was it? It was Grafilo, uh, Takasago Premium, and um, uh, Tomoa River. She she had the exact same top three papers that I like. And I thought it was funny because she really just gave me a long lecture about why these were the <laughs> best papers. <laughs> and I'm like, you, you know, you're preaching to the choir, but uh, she insisted that I understood that. Something that you said earlier, which caught my attention, is that um, there were a lot of uh, let's say overseas inks that usually aren't available in a lot of retailers. Right. So you mentioned like Aurora is not commonly found in retailers. Probably Caran Dash is not commonly found in retailers. Um, do you think there's a bit of that kind of, I suppose, attraction because they're not easily available? Similar to how a lot of times I think in the West, you know, people in like the U.S. or the U.K. Uh, or the rest of Europe really covet sailor inks for example because they're just not commonly found and there's no other way to get them absolutely absolutely i think the the there were the like karandash and um, ackerman and the aurora inks and even things like uh, troublemaker i don't know, i don't think troublemaker was there but venta venta inks were there those are not commonly available in the average stationery store but some yeah, of the and, inks available were are also inks that you can buy on any given day at either Itoya or Morrison. But the thing is, you can't just go to the third floor of Itoya and bring your own dip pen and notebook and start swatching yeah. all the inks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true, that's true. I guess this is an opportunity to find out what they really want. The, the lady that had the three different uh, kinds of paper, she didn't buy a lot. I think she, she kind of like looked, tried everything and then like carefully considered one bottle. And many people there were, you could leave and come back, right? And there were people that would test a bunch of inks and then leave. They have a coffee shop there mm. just for a bit and think about their purchase and come back in. I thought that was a much more measured crowd than you normally see at Inkanuma. Mm. Lots of times at Inkanuma, people are dragging along suitcases, right? And they're just buying gobs of ink for their friends and plopping them in the, the drag-along suitcase. So it had a little bit more of a, for lack of a better word, refined air to it. Mm. Like it was more like people were there testing instead of just, you know, like I do, it's just willy-nilly buy stuff. But do you think it's also because they had a lot of inventory there, so there wasn't really a fear of, I guess, uh, selling out? Well, there were just a gajillion special editions. I mean, I just finally just gave up. There was just too many. I mean, mm. Sailor had them, and different lines had them. And there was just, every time I turned around, like Romeo had a bunch of special editions, the Romeo inks. Mm. And there were probably like 20 different special editions. So I think, you know, people are going, you need to go right away to get the the limited edition. It's like, which limited edition? <laughs> and there was, there was, there was, you know, enough limited editions of the different kind that somebody could get one a limited edition yeah right. so i think yeah it, it wasn't this big rush that you normally see right and, and for the listeners who don't know romeo is the in-house brand of itoya yeah um so one of the inks that i heard were really popular was this green limited edition uh, romeo ink actually uh did any of you try that or buy that Yes, yeah, so I bought that and I tried it. I think I thought it was pretty like standard green ink. I, I didn't. I mean, it, it was nice, but it wasn't anything particularly. I mean, it wasn't. I usually find tag inks interesting because they always find this interesting, like in between colors and shades and so on. Uh, this Itoya ink wasn't anything like that. It was just like a plain, like mid-green ink. I thought. Um, <laughs> yeah, you saw people buying it. <laughs> But it wasn't really anything that special. So why yeah. did you buy it? Because someone <laughs> asked me to buy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And pe that was probably the one ink that Romeo Greenland that most people were interested in. I'm not sure why, because I saw it. I'm like, yeah, it's green. Mm. And you know, and the Romeo bottles are they're rather uninspiring. So I, I didn't get it. Yeah. All right. But overall, you'd say it's a good event. 
Absolutely. I think because mainly because it is so different. It's such an unusual thing. And I think it just captures people's imagination that you can try of, you know, swatching a hundred different bottles. I mean, a thousand different bottles of ink or over a thousand. I think you were saying like 1500. Yeah. Um, Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. So somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred bottles of ink, you could swatch them and walk out not buy a single bottle. You just paid your entrance fee and you got a little dip pen and you got to try them and you were there for two and a half hours. Now I know it was really crowded for you, Jacob, but you went on the weekend. Yeah. It wasn't that bad during the weekday, so um, you could still you could. I mean, I had plenty of room to like take video and stuff, so it was probably a lot less crowded during the weekday, but it's definitely something different and just something so unique. It's just different than just, we want to sell you something. It was kind of like, we want you to experience something. Yeah. And then while you're here, buy some stuff. Yeah. That's and really true. Kind of off, off the back of that. Do you think that they made enough on their investment to have this again next year? I don't know. You know, I mean, the, this is only their second one. So, right, um, right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, hopefully, um, hopefully this will continue, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Like there's a there's another ink show coming up, right? And in, in, end of August, and I'm like, ah, another ink show because it's like <laughs> all the other ones, right? But then this ink, ink, ink. If they have one again next year, I definitely want to go to it. As opposed to now, when we get an ink show that's a normal ink show, I'm like, ah, do I really want to go? Because like, I want I don't want to fight the crowds and look through ten thousand tons of washi tape. Do I want to do that to like look at some inks? We're here, you're gonna go and it is only inks and it almost has a curated feel to it. So, yeah, I would definitely go to this one again more so than like a, a normal ink show. And what is the one at the end of August? Um, the the Bunga Joshi people have a uh, one coming out at the end of August, okay, okay. But now they even admit that there's going to be like washi tape and stuff, they, they just don't call it an ink show anymore. It's like right, an ink right. show and something else. So, it's kind of like last year's uh, ink and deco numa. Yes, exactly. I think it's even called Ink and Deco too. I'm I'm not sure. Okay, okay, okay. So it's, that that's it's, the one where people were basically like rushing toward, you know, the uh, the tables and the bookshelves where all the exclusive inks were, and they were just fighting yeah, over. Yeah, <laughs> you get tackled yeah. if you get in the way. Right, right, right. Yeah. All right. Sounds like you guys had a good time. Um, I didn't go this year just because I didn't want to be tempted by all that ink. But <laughs> hey, sounds like y'all had a good time. We did. I did. All right. Um, moving on to the next topic, a little bit out of order here. But, Jacob, you and I both received these glass pens. So we talked last time about Wancher's Kunisaki glass pens. And uh, with a little bit of research and digging, it appeared that they were very, very similar to those made by the Oita um, Penishery kind of Capic program, right? Yeah. So you went ahead and ordered two from the Furusato Noze. Yeah. Uh, and I ordered one directly from Wancher. Yeah. And you made a post about it. You made an Instagram post about it. Would you, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I managed to order two of those Capic pens uh, in a roundabout way. And um, yeah, they arrived and they were, I must say, I was surprised by just how nice these pens were so there seems to be two if you look at both if you look at Capic's uh, website or rather their social media platforms you can see that there are two main like, models there's one where the glass nib is pretty large like three centimeters long and then the body has this like, twisted and like, wavy pattern right and then there's another model where the nib is smaller and then it is kind of sphere thing between the nib and the body and you know the that wave shape only goes halfway so i both of the pens that i got were of the former model where the nib is pretty long and the whole body has that wave shape and it seems like such a well-made pen i mean the, the nib holds a lot of ink i dipped it once and i could easily write the whole page without without any problems and it wasn't like you know sometimes badly designed glass nibs have this problem where you know you start right and it just drips ink and then it quickly goes to like thin faint dry line and then that's the end of it right it's like the, the drill log experience right <laughs> uh, this one has none of that you, you dip it and it has very sort of controlled ink flow and you can write for a long time so and 
and the feedback is has just it's just that you know pencil like it you can feel the paper but it doesn't you know scratch it doesn't tear up the paper so overall the pen is so well designed I, I, it makes me really want to know the story behind it. Is this some kind of like grand glass master who was convicted for like tax fraud or something? Like, <laughs> what, what's the story here? I, I don't get yeah. it. No, it. It certainly looks really well. And of course, you are fantastic at the you know, f- photography of these products. It, I mean, when, when you receive these pens, what, what was the expectation and, and what did you actually receive? Well, I only saw the photos on Capix's uh, website, which, as we talked about in the last episode, were remarkably similar to Wancher's website. So if, if you go to, actually, if you go to Wancher's online store right now, they only have the, the second model I talked about where the, the nib is smaller. But if you go to Wancher's Pinterest account, maybe also on the Facebook or whatever, but on the Pinterest account in particular, they have all of photos of their current and past models and that's where you can clearly see these two different models um, and it's basically the same two models that this Capic pro- program also sells so we are talking about not just one but two different glass pen designs that are sold both by this Capic program and sold by Wanship, which is very <laughs> suspicious. Um, I don't have myself one of the Wanship pens with, with this you know, older design that I'm talking about, but one of our friends, a, a, a listener of the podcast, has one of the older Wanship pens with the very same design. And as far as I can tell, it's very similar. Yeah, so um, I actually asked this friend of ours to help us give some measurements mm. and the the measurements the total length 18 centimeters body length 15 nib length 13 all of these seem you know suspiciously very very similar to yeah. what you received i mean okay so so do you guys want me to just say it since you're just tipped out toeing <laughs> around it I, I just think that basically it's the same thing they don't want to fess up but it's the same thing. Yeah. But what I'm curious about, you said it's it's a very good writer. It's a good pen. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a nice thing, you know. I mean, but yeah, it, I think you guys have pretty much well shown that it probably is a prison pen. So I actually purchased the the other model, the second model mm. that you were talking about, and I did notice that the nib was slightly shorter mm. than the first model. But it comes with this um, pen pillow, which mm. I don't think yours came with, right? No, it didn't. And I think last time we referenced uh, a Reddit uh, user, mm. sin- you sincerely spicy, who who had also ordered from Wancher. And one of the things that I noticed was that when um, you sincerely spicy had bought their pen, it came in the older uh, Capex box, the mm. kind of teal sky blue box whereas Wancher has now actually updated the box and so now they they're repackaging or seemingly to be repackaging these pens into their own wooden boxes yeah and I did think that you know that was probably a smart kind of marketing choice on Wancher's side but yeah, Alyssa, I do agree with you it, it seems all but confirmed it seems all but confirmed that they're pretty much, you know, from the same place. Which leads us to, to wonder why exactly Wancha would, you know, um, go out of their way to kind of create this backstory about these glass masters in Kunizaki who, you know, as Jacob said, maybe they were indicted for tax fraud and, you know, <laughs> hold up somewhere now. It would be interesting to know. It would be interesting to know the story behind the people who actually make these pens. So, but whatever it is, the pens themselves are actually quite nice. At least the ones I got. I, I was pleasantly surprised by not only how like beautiful they were, but also how well they wrote. However strange the backstory is, these are good glass pens. And um, how much did you pay for yours? Well, so I got mine via this hometown tax program, so I ended up paying 2,000 yen in total. Uh, whereas I paid uh, 20,000 yen. Yeah. So. 
All right. Um, so that's uh, kind of the follow up to these Wancher Kunisaki pens. Um, next up, unpopular opinions about fountain pens <laughs> and ink. So what what are these unpopular opinions we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, really. How unpopular? Uh, a few days ago, YouTube's algorithm recommended me an old video by Goulet Pens, where a customer, I guess, of uh, Goulet Pens asked Brian Goulet, does he have any kind of unpopular opinions about pens or ink and paper? So any opinions that probably aren't the same as you know most of the community? And I think his answers were that... You know, he likes cartridge converter pens and he's using all of his pens. No pens are just collectors only pens. They're all being used. I can't remember what his other opinions were. But my thought when I saw that video is that that would be kind of fun topic for this uh, podcast, especially now that we have uh, Alessa on this episode. So between the three of us, I'm sure <laughs> we have some... <laughs> some opinions that might be uh, unusual uncommon so th- that's that's the idea behind this segment all right well well i've, I've got one i've got one um, i'm sure you do which is <laughs> i don't think that it's healthy for the community to always be chasing the best deal or the or the biggest discounts yeah, yeah i agree because um discounts are great for the consumer but at the end of the day, in order for the industry to survive and to keep going, you need to have money in it. It needs to be profitable yeah. for people who are, who are actually doing these things. So and we'll get to, to this later as well um, in the main topic, so to say. But, you know, sometimes people ask me to, to help them get a pen and I'll say it's, you know, X the price. Right, and they'll be like, "Oh, but it's so expensive." What they don't understand is, you know, there's like, you know, buying train tickets to over to get there. There's like time lost, and so at the end of the day, maybe I make like, you know, twenty dollars, like thirty dollars out out of it. And for these manufacturers, right, you know, Jacob, you sent me a link to um, to Sailor's website when they were looking for apprentice nib grinders, and those people don't get paid a lot at all. And so I think, um, and and that was a time when Sailor was actually losing money, right? Mm. So I think it's, of course, I don't know how Sailor is using their newfound profits. I I hope it goes to paying their employees. But at the end of the day, I think if you're looking for a discount on something, if you're trying to just get the biggest discount, somebody is paying for it. It might not be you, the consumer, that cost is bore by somebody down the line. And I don't think fountain pens made anybody a millionaire, right? I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. I don't think anybody became a millionaire by selling fountain pens, at least not in you know, our modern era. So, yeah, that's my, that's my uh, unpopular opinion. As someone who's always looking for the best possible deal, usually secondhand, I'm personally offended by this opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but so is your opinion then that you should buy pens at MSRP? Should you avoid it? I mean, there are certain retailers that are famous for, you know, not just the occasional discounts, but have a consistent discount and sometimes suspicious low prices. Right. So, um, you know, to your point about buying secondhand pens those pens would only be available to you at that cost if somebody had bought it first right at msrp like you wouldn't be able to get those savings if somebody hadn't helped i guess um front the costs Mm. so to say and then the pens that you usually buy are like you know 30 40 50 years old like there's really beat down pens and that's why they're at that price of course, you could get them to look almost like new again, but that caught, you know that takes a lot of polishing and stuff like that. So, I think um, for for new pens, for for new pens, it's you know, I think MSRP sometimes it's expensive. Like Monte Grappas, I think they're they're wildly expensive. Mm. Graf von Faber Castell, they're they're wildly expensive. But I also don't have to buy them. You know, it's. It's not an imperative that that I own them, and that's fine. But I think when you know we we try to look for, for the biggest discount, uh, then what happens is 
all of the retailers then have to gravitate to that same level of discount. So let's say one certain retail, let's say retailer A always discounts by forty percent. Yeah. Then the other retailers will also have to discount in order to be competitive. And what that means, and, and, and here's the thing, right? Um, the retailers usually, they make like 40 or 50% margin. And then if they discount it by like 30% or 40%, that means their margin decreases, right? And that means the cost that they have to pay overhead, to pay rent, to pay um, you know wages, that all goes down. So... You know, we always talk about, you know, supporting our local brick and mortar stores. You know, we're always sad when a store, when a fountain pen store closes down. Well, a lot of times they close down because there's these expectations that, well, you have to have free delivery, right? You have to have next day delivery or you have to have these discounts. And ultimately, that kind of race to the bottom just becomes unsustainable for a lot of shops especially the smaller ones are you saying that as a consumer you have a moral obligation to buy from the stores that sell at msrp and avoid a discount retailers or who needs to make sure that people don't buy at discounts well i don't think there's a moral obligation for the consumer to do anything right the consumer they have to look after they have to look out for themselves and what is their best interest right if you can't afford to buy a pen you know my recommendation is always don't buy it Mm. but i think it's it's less of a individual obligation and more of this um, Amazon culture that we live in, where you know we're we're almost so uh, spoiled in the way that we expect you know free delivery uh, or free shipping, next day delivery, and that kind of expectation has, has I think skewed a little bit of the consumer's perspective. So I think um, just in general, it would be. Uh, productive for mm. consumers to you know think obviously if there's free shipping that's great that's something that's provided by by the retailer and you know that's just what it is that's fine but when when a shop or a retailer doesn't provide free shipping right like we can always think okay um is it reasonable for them to ask for this shipping um is it reasonable that I'm asking for for free shipping on a I don't know like a fifty dollar purchase when shipping mm. costs forty dollars, I think there's a lot of food for uh, food for thought in that. But I think actually people do address this to some extent because I've just seen multiple discussions online where people talk about I think it was specifically about um, companies that put a lot of information out on the internet. They take the time to film and put out product information or just general information about fountain pens for people that don't know a lot about it. And so they kind of add to the community and some people feel a certain amount of loyalty. And I think I've seen that a lot where it seems to be the consensus. It depends on what your cutoff is. But some people will say, like, if I can save up to 30% off, I'll still go with this retailer and pay their full price. But if I can save more than 30%, I'm going to go with a discount. So they're kind of making a compromise between recognizing that these companies, A, have to you know keep their business running, and B, they add a lot to the community. And still, like, they've got a budget, too. So you know, I, I don't know if it's 10% or 20%, but this particular person was very clear about on one of these discussions that it was flat out 30% for him. If he up to 30%, he would just pay the full up price at whatever he was, mm. whatever company he was kind of loyal to. But if he could save more than 30%, he had to think about the fact that, you know, he's got a budget. So then he would go with a discount. So I think a lot of people do think about this. I think there's a certain amount of, uh, I don't want to say morality, but because that's just too loaded, but there's a certain amount of understanding, that's a better word, understanding at a level that we are a niche hobby. And our niche hobby is run by small businesses. And so they do want to make sure that these businesses are here, but also, you know, they, they got to pay their rent or whatever. So I think there is, it is addressed to some, by a lot of people that they do feel a certain way of both wanting to save money and helping the community. But I think the main way this is addressed nowadays is with store exclusives, right? If I just want yeah, to buy a yeah. standard Pilot 74, I mean, if I want to, you know, test it out, 
then I may want to go to Marazen or whichever my local retailer is. But if I know what I want, I might as well buy it from Amazon. But if I want to buy, you know, Hachimondia, Ginsan, Snow, well, I can only buy it from Hachimondia. And I think for the last few years, we have seen an explosion of store exclusive. And I think, think that's the way going forward. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. That's yeah. a good way to address that. I, I agree as well. And I think that's definitely how the market um, should go. And I think actually Goulet Pens is a good example of what, Alessa, you were talking about because they're they're the ones that put out a lot of new content that most um, newcomers to Fountain Pens actually probably have watched one or two of their their videos, which they do all you know, quote unquote, for free. And I think they are a little bit more expensive than like a pen chalet, for example, right? But pen chalet doesn't necessarily put out content on you know how to clean your pens or you know how to take care of your pens and so i think there there is a lot of value in that and even this podcast for example right like this podcast we put out a lot of information uh and it's free it, it's free and hopefully will continue to be free um in in perpetuity but there's a lot of information out there that you know enthusiasts like us put together and you know, we don't necessarily get paid for that. And yeah, so if there's a retailer that's going out there doing that, that that's time that they don't get to do the selling, right? That's time where they don't get to do the the making money part of the business. And so, yeah, I think store exclusives, um, information, uh, but also customer service, right? I, th- I think customer service has... Uh, an important factor to do with this because in Japan most most stores are, are pretty good at it mm. but if you know you buy something it doesn't ship for four weeks and then you, know, you try to contact them nobody nobody is there to pick up the phone unless it's like you know like a 70% off or something like a significant discount you're probably not going to buy there again that's true so that was my unpopular opinion which <laughs> took 20 minutes to discuss <laughs> what about you guys you have any unpopular opinions should be a, it should be like your your uh, um, in every podcast we have a popular opinion of the day <laughs> when you watch or read pen reviews and um, when, when the reviewer likes the nib the, a common adjective is smooth we always we seem to use smooth as almost like synonymous with a good nib a well-behaved nib a nib you want to write with right and i think sometimes you hear the same thing with paper that like rhodia paper is good because it's smooth and the nib just glides over it and i think overall in the pen community we seem to consider smooth to be good like smooth nib is good smooth paper is good my unpopular opinion is that i object to that <laughs> I think you guys are really into this. I object to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, so because a nib that is too smooth, not only are you going to have probably you know baby bottoms and hard start, but even ignoring that, the two problems I have is that first of all, if you don't feel like the paper when you write, you might as well just write with a stylus on a glass surface. You don't have the the, the, the tactile feeling of writing. It's not a pleasant writing experience to me. And the other thing is my handwriting looks even worse when I'm using an overly smooth nib because when the nib glides too much on the paper, I find it harder to like shape the, 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 the handwritten characters. It looks even worse than it normally does. I tend to prefer nibs that have a bit of a, a pencil feedback. I don't want to like, tear up the page when I'm writing. I don't want different feedback depending on direction, but I want this consistent uh, pencil-like feedback on my nibs. Uh, and the same one with paper, I prefer textured paper, especially like uh, Midori MD, I think it's uh, way nicer to write on than say Rhodia, precisely because it has that textured, has that little bit of a tooth that makes feels like you're writing with paper rather than you know using a stylus on a glass surface. So that's mine. I also find that that, is, that seems to be more common among um, reviewers who target like newer audiences absolutely I think, yeah yeah, yeah. I was yeah. Agree with that. Pe- people who have experience with fountain pens usually don't actually prefer that classy smooth mm. feeling i think what it is is when you come from a ballpoint pen and and then you go to a fountain pen 
that's probably the first noticeable, noticeable mm. thing you have is that it's wow it just like ink comes out and it's so smooth mm. and it, it's a it's a very distinct difference and so i think new fountain pen users really revel in that and then after a while you start to notice things like you know my 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 handwriting's not as good or i i want a little bit of feedback to know where i'm at mm. uh, you know when i'm writing so i think and again, this will probably be super unpopular, is that I think as you become a more experienced fountain pen user, you tend not necessarily not like smoothness, but you branch out in your taste. Yeah, yeah. And you start to like different kinds. And that's probably one of the reasons my biggest problem with uh, Chinese nibs is they're just incredibly smooth. And I feel like I'm not really writing. I'm not sure what mm-hmm. I'm doing. It just feels so. Whenever I get a, a Chinese nib, I always just drag it across a knife sharpener a little bit just to <laughs> rough it up a little bit. <laughs> So that's my unpopular opinion. <laughs> oh, that's very creative. I like it. Maybe there should be a recurring segment on a podcast. I feel like we, we, we yeah, could go on for, forever. But uh, yeah. we, we have other topics. Exactly. <laughs> so, CY, do you want to move on to Naginata Togi news? Yeah, so I, um, I saw on a story the other day, which I sent to you, I believe, um, and it seems that Sailor are stopping all new orders of Naginata Togi nibs uh, for the time being. They're pausing the production of Naginata nibs. And we've actually seen this before, right? We, we saw this back around 2015, 2016. Right. At the time, they were uh, saying that demand was uh, outstripping supply. And basically, people were buying these nibs faster than they could produce them. Mm. So it seems like something similar is happening yet again. And last time when they did this, they came out with the the new series, which is the special nib series, Mm. where they create a new body, uh, new section, which looked exactly like the old pens. They were just threaded differently. Um, But it also accompanied a, like, um, what was it, like a... um, 30,000 yen jump. This time, we know that from August 1, they're going to increase the price of the Naginata Togis to um, the standard Naginata Togi to 80,000 yen. Mm. So that's a 30, 30% wow. in, uh, yeah, 30% wow. increase. Uh, which makes, I think, Naginata Togis very um, unappealing uh, in terms of the price point. Uh, now, of course, that comes off the, the back of me saying that, hey, you shouldn't be looking for the biggest discounts. But I think also that um, these Naginata Togi nibs, they're going to be priced out of a lot of people's um, range now. And I think there's going to be a stronger demand for, um, I think, aftermarket grinds. Especially when you consider that you can bring one to Nagahara and get it for, what, what is it, $120 you mm. can get a Naginata Togi from him? And I think, yeah, we'll, we'll probably be seeing that uh, a lot more often. So I only had a quick look at the announcements. I didn't understand the full scope. So we're saying that this is not just about you know the build to order, you know, build the gear, but it's actually the quote-unquote standard bespoke line you know the naginata the cross point and all in all of those so uh, i'm gonna send you the link to the um to the press release but yeah they they did submit a press release onto their website saying that they're going to stop the ordering of naginata togi and the special pen grinds uh for the time being so, so this comes after, as you said, it comes after that recent announcement that they are increasing their prices. This is really curious, especially yeah. as you say, because now, now there are more more like nib workers than ever offering Naginata-ish grinds, right? So you would think, naively think that there's more competition could potentially drive prices down, but clearly that that's not happening. There's a lot of demand for these nibs. They, they say that they've got orders um, for the next six months um, so that they can't really take more new orders, which I think that's 
could be very interesting. Could be could be a positive thing. But I, I wonder though if this is, if this means any kind of personal some turnover changes at Sailor. I mean, you just a few minutes ago we talked about how Sailor doesn't pay their new workers particularly well, and it might be more lucrative to do this go go solo and do your own new work. So maybe they're struggling to retain their nib workers with the talent needed to produce these kind of nibs that could be possible but i i don't see a lot of these um nib workers at least advertising their services that's true um outside of nagarasan so yeah i mean i hope i hope that this actually pushes the market in mm. a more customized grind um kind of direction just like everybody everywhere else in the world but we'll see yeah all right, now to the main topic of the day. Uh, you two fine folks here had <laughs> collaborated on a, um, I think, project about how to buy pens from Japan. And yeah, I'm curious how this kind of collaboration came about. Where was the idea? And obviously, we get these questions all the time. So yeah, just take us away. Yeah, so... I think it was my idea, but it was inspired by Alessa. It was in particular, it was inspired by what Alessa said in the in the spicy episode, if you remember, <laughs> right? So she said the spicy episode. So she said that we I mean we are privileged in the sense that we live here in Japan. We have easy access to most of the pens that we're talking about, including some, you know, obscure store exclusives. They're all relatively easy for us to buy. And for that reason, we don't necessarily, you know, appreciate, you know, understand, you know, the challenges people have acquiring this pen from overseas and, you know, the value that these uh, resellers provide. So then I thought, okay, why don't we, why don't we create a guide? Why don't we figure out how to buy pens from Japan if you're not here? Um, you know, what stores can sell pens and ship overseas? What pen clubs are willing to sell directly to people overseas? What kind of you know proxy shipping forwarding services are available? And once you have an account with one of those services, what are the online stores you can use uh, to, to buy from? And also, what are the second-hand options? So I did a bit of research and I created like a big page full of links and then Alessa took that and made this fantastic video when she explained in detail about how to use some of the stores, uh, some of the shipping services, the difference between them and I think that became uh, quite popular and we got a lot of feedback on, on those. I just want to mention that Jacob left the, um, I mean he, he put it together, this is his information but he kind of left the testing to me. It was just awful. <laughs> it was just awful. Going through those secondhand like, websites and just all oh, the just pages and pages of stuff. And I just realized why, you know, Jacob wears a fishing hat and tells people to get off his lawn because he sits there and looks at these pages. It was just, I don't know how you do it, Jacob. Yeah, I mean, Yahoo Auctions and uh, Mercari in particular, it, it it takes a while to get used to, you know, the interface. Oh, I died. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. It was awful. Yeah, and this is a very comprehensive list. It took me some time to, to, to put the list together, too, because I wasn't really that into fountain pens uh, before I moved to Japan. So I have never been in a position where I was anywhere else and tried to buy pens from Japan. So I didn't really know what the difference was between, you know, uh, White Rabbit and Bai-E and Zen Market and Tenso and Black Ship and whatever they're called. So I had to do some research and, and Alessa did that, to be honest, and, uh, most of the research and testing about that. And then I tried to find a list of all the various online stores and I, Part of that included just going to Rakuten and search for, you know, Gente Manage and see what kind of stores were selling and then, you know, listing all the stores and then putting direct links to, you know, the Fanta pens section, the exclusive pens sections and sometimes exclusive uh, direct links to the actual pens. And the biggest challenge or one of the challenges was to avoid just pressing the buy button yourself while you're putting together that link. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. At one time, I was just adding and adding and trying to figure out, you know, will this go to the, you know, outside of Japan? Will this not? 
And I was just running through and going, okay, and I just had an address, my a home address in, in the States. And I was just running through and doing that. And then I realized I had like $3,000 worth of pens in there. And I almost hit the buy button. <laughs> and I just had a, whoa, I got to like make sure I take each pen out. So if I accidentally buy something, I'm not buying like gobs of stuff. I'm just buying one thing. But yeah, that was a, that was a danger. One question I got a few times, and I think, Alessa, you got a question too, was, you know, why didn't you include uh, Pensace in the list? And my response to that was that my goal was to explain how to buy directly from the original seller, whether that is an, you know, a retailer like Ishimaru Bunkuro or whether it was a pen club like, uh, you know, YY Pen Club. Um, and I think people don't realize, A, that... Pensatri is a reseller, we covered that before, and also I think they didn't realize what kind of markup. I think most people realize that there is a markup that you pay when you buy from a reseller. I don't think they necessarily realize how big that markup can be. So I, I not on the post, but I did some Instagram stories afterwards with some examples, and I found uh, one, at least one case where you pay more than twice the price more than twice the, the retail price when you buy from one of the resellers and not it i'm not talking about you know including the shipping fees or anything like that i'm talking about just the price of the pen itself comparing the actual retail price to the resellers advertised price i think that's the pilot 91 hamanasu yeah right that you that you talked about i'm, I'm curious because uh you know for, for those of the listeners who might not know, um, sometimes folks also ask you and I. Um, I think you have one particular person, but for me, you know, a lot of different people ask me to help them acquire certain um, exclusive and hard to get Japanese limited editions. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to understand your thoughts on why sometimes some people would want to use a let's say like a proxy or a reseller or you know when some people would maybe want to buy direct i think people don't realize that some stores do sell directly for example i think we have talked about it previously on the podcast nagasawa is one of those stores that sell directly to people overseas but it's not, it, it is not immediately obvious when you go to the website or even when you go to the instagram account like if you don't know you might think that you can only buy this uh, nagasawa exclusive decimals or whatever it is you're looking for if you are in japan so for that reason you might be tempted to go to one of the resellers that is advertising this pain even though you're paying like 50 plus percent markup so and and even i didn't really know which pen which retailers sold overseas so i wanted to do that research i wanted to figure it out for myself and i got some help from various other people who had done similar research um so i think to answer your question people don't buy directly because they don't know they can buy directly Mm. and um do you think there are differences uh, and I've written down this on the show notes. Um, there is surely a difference between scalpers versus resellers versus retailers, right? Yeah. So we know that some people purchase in, in large amounts, uh, not really just to resell the product, but also to make sure nobody else gets to resell the product so they can you know, get a monopoly on said limited edition and raise the prices right it's not black and white that i mean it, it can be hard to say who is a scalper who is a reseller i would say if you are you know you you buy three pens from hachimonja and you sell them on ebay there's no question that you are a reseller seller and and if you want to buy from that ebay right. seller then you don't have to buy from that reseller ebay seller if you on the other hand buy the full stock of you know every single pen that is in stock from you know again using hachimonji as an example and you put them on your website and on top of that you don't make it obvious that you make it look like you are a like legitimate retailer that's when i have a problem so to a you make it hard for people to buy directly and b you pretend to be a 
normal retailer. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, I, I did have a curiosity. Um, so you know, uh, Izumi Pence. He's a he's kind of like straddling between reseller and retailer, and a lot of people ask me about Izumi Pen or Izumi Pens. I don't remember exactly the the handle, but what 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 he does is he goes around to different retailers in Japan and he asks them, "Hey, can I create limited editions mm. uh, in your name?" Because he doesn't hold a direct relationship with Sailor, right? So he he goes, he says, um, "Can I?" order limited editions through you guys and so he's had collaborations i think mostly with penpoint but also with some other uh other shops where he's created various hits i, I would say he's like the male version of shishikura-san right mm. where he's really been successful in designing a lot of uh, really cool and really well coveted pens and um i had an experience once where uh, I, you know, he he was uh, he was selling this um, this kind of pearlescent green uh, realo, mm. and uh, I bought a few from him, and I changed them into kind of these flex nips, and I, I got a lot of inquiries from from that story, and I remember one particular person, one particular customer, she asked, you know, how much are these? I said, well. It's going to be cheaper if you buy directly from from Izumi because you know he's the one who's selling it to me. And this customer said, "Well, I want to specifically buy it from you because it has you know your nib work on it." So I think there is, there are cases where going through resellers probably um, does yield some kind of a benefit, and I, I'm thinking specifically about. Like uh, if if you're buying a hard to get edition, and you use something like a Zen Market, for example, the Zen Market people aren't necessarily knowledgeable about pens, so they wouldn't know where to check, right? Whereas um, somebody who you trust on the ground, who who you know is like a, an actual person, um, a lot of times they'll be able to help you make sure that you know the pen is functioning, um, that doesn't require you know repairs and stuff like that so i do see some kind of value in using retailers sometimes but i agree with you that there are uh, certain resellers who then change the name of the editions right who who aren't forthright with where exactly they're getting these pens and i agree with you that that's where the the problems really really start Whereas if you, again, look at Izumi Pens, I think Izumi Pens is always very clear, you know, this is a Bunga Box edition or this is a stationary station edition. Well, not only that, but it's sometimes selling pens that you, you really would have a really hard time, even if you're in Japan, to buy elsewhere. So for example, I remember recently he's, he managed to get hold of some Marzen show exclusive pens from like 10 years ago. And I don't even know what, oh, yeah. what he charges for that, but I mean, that, that's not something you can easily get hold of, even if you're here, even if you can go to Marazan, or if, even if you have access to your auctions. That's a, that is a very hard to find pen. And I, I think it's reasonable to have a, a, to have a markup on that. But if you don't provide any value add, which to be honest, I think most resellers don't really do. And on top of that, you buy up the entire stock so that you make it hard for people to buy it through the normal channels. Well, then you're not really a value add to the community. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Lassa, anything else to add? Yeah, I just think that the, the, the thing that really shows that special editions are, that's the way of the future. If you think we talked about you know, supporting the small business, but also that's like 90% of the reason why people want to get pens from Japan is that they already know what a straight up, you know, 9-11 is or whatever, mm -hmm. but they, they want something that's different. And I think they, the different colors, the different nibs, the different finials, those are all fun. It makes the, the, the pen more personal. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Western mar markets and producers should really pay attention to that, that that's really I think the way the market's going to go, 
And it, I think it, it will help grow the fountain pen community if we can uh, capitalize on that. Um, but also a lot of times that's because, you know, let's just say sailor, right? Sailor won't yeah. let them make, <laughs> yeah. make yeah. those additions. And that's where, like, you know, maybe other, other um, pen companies, Western pen companies, they have a standard model, offer it in, like, an interesting nib that's just not the regular, you know, Yoba number six. It actually has an imprint that's different or... Or whatever, but I mean, I'm, I don't know what the answer is, but that definitely would catch people's attention. Yeah, yeah. All right, shall we close out with some listener questions? Do we have that? Sure. <laughs> All right. Um, so I've got two questions today. Uh, the first question: Why is the universe of brush fountain pens so completely distinct from that of metal nib fountain pens? It's true that brush nibs wear out but they can be replaced on most pens. There are some beautiful brush fountain pens, as you know, and they can do amazing things with the same inks that we obsess over for their use in solid nibs. I use brush pens for ink drawing and washes in combination with my metal nib pens. So what do you think? Maybe a circular answer, but it's just a different community. I, I when I think of brush pens, I think of either like a traditional Asian calligraphy, or I think of brush lettering, which I think is diff slightly different community, different group of people than you know your normal fountain pen users. The same way, like uh, you know, dip pen calligraphy is also a different community. There's some overlap, of course, but it's just not the same group of people. I think those who are buying fountain pens, you, you might think that they're all interested in calligraphy, but I think a relatively small part of that community is buying fountain pens to write Spencerian. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that um, it's just a fundamentally different product. With, uh, with a brush pen, you, you have to consistently change out the brush. And um, making the brushes are, are hard. I think the only people that are making brush fountain pens that I, I can think of are really Kuretake, mm. who does a good job on that. Um, but even those, because the, the entire section has to be disposable, I think um, you don't get as high of a quality on the, the non-brush parts of that pen. Mm. True. Um, all right, the second question. Why does Sailor still use 21K gold in their large and KOP nibs? I noticed that even though theoretically 21K gold should be softer than 14 or 18K gold, my 21K Sailor nib isn't any noticeably bouncier or softer than my 14K gold nibs, mostly from Pilot, Platinum, and Sailor. If gold prices are rising, causing Sailor's recent price hikes, and using 21k gold in their nibs doesn't have much of a tangible difference in writing experience compared to the 14k nibs. Why doesn't Sailor switch to using 14k or 18k alloys in their large and KOP nibs? Didn't we ask the same question just a few episodes ago? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a matter of pride. I yes. think um, they, they have a lot of pride in providing the market's only 21k nib. And I, I want to, you know, point out that the the carrot is not necessarily what makes a a material soft or not. I think more often than not, it has to do with the alloys, and so that's why you find that pilot nibs, for example, are significantly softer than, let's say, platinum nibs. So, I think you know the the purpose of having a twenty one k gold nib is not to make it bouncier or softer it's just a matter of of pride it's just a matter of in a way ego right and, and we did see that in their um their 21k uh series that they they released last year with the with the full size um with the full size and the kop pen um i think that was just called 21k blue dawn but yeah i i don't think there's a particular reason for that absolutely it's it's marketing it's it's and like you said the gold it's not just the alloy it's whether or not it's been work hardened it matters on the shape of the nib it i you can use a, a gold nib and some of them are like harder than a steel nib but if you think about it this way you can wear a stainless steel necklace 
or you can wear a 21 karat gold necklace. They're both necklaces, they both look nice, but one's 21 karat gold. It's just the marketing, it's, it's a more luxe item. And when you have a bigger nib and a KOP, it's a more luxe pen. And that's what they're using it for. For the KOP, because it's kind of a higher niche product, I wouldn't be surprised if they keep the 21K. For the for the large, for the, the pro gear size, I, I think it's conceivable that they might reintroduce the large 14K. Because as we have talked about before, uh, many times Sailor did large 14K nibs for a long time. And we have had countless large 14k nibs right and, and and they are quite soft they're quite good and and uh, i don't see why they wouldn't be able to produce those again i think i think a caveat to that is that they have to see sales dip from their price increase uh using 21 karat gold nibs yeah and i think with that we have an episode thank Yay. you very very much um if you liked this episode please give us a review um please uh rate us on apple Podcasts or google Podcasts or spotify wherever you are listening to this and uh and yeah we'll see you next time my name is cy you can find me on my website at tokyostationpens.com on instagram and tiktok at tokyostationpens and on twitter at tokyostationmnh and my name is jacob and i'm foodofan on instagram and on twitter and have a blog at foodofan.com Thanks for having me on. This is Elisa. I'm Inky Rocks on YouTube, uh, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.